0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter. Mark chapter 1. We are resuming our study of the apostles, men who were molded by the Master. We began looking at this uh, earlier in the summer. We took several weeks and uh, did an over general overview, and then we have begun looking at the specific apostles and looking at their lives, and I want to continue that this this evening. Now, I enjoy kids that have spunk. I realize they could be a handful, but if properly challenged, they will also do something in life. And it's important to direct that. The individual I want us to consider tonight, I think, is an apostle that was such a person. He's in the top tier of the apostles. In fact, when we were looking at really a general overview, we we considered that there are really three groups of the apostles, three groups of four. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John making up that first group, and and Peter is always listed first. When the list of the apostles are given, he, he is always first. The second group is Philip, Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew, and Philip is always listed first in that second group. And then the final group of James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, Judas of James, and Judas Iscariot, the traitor, and he is always listed last. And and so we've begun looking at these, and the one I want us to consider tonight is, is familiar because he was part of that inner circle. There were three disciples that were considered part of the inner circles, Peter, James, and John. And yet although he was in that inner circle, this individual really served with obscurity. If I were to ask you to tell me something specific about James, something he said, something he did, that he alone was involved in, uh, you would be hard-pressed to find that. Because we actually have no statements, no quotes by James. We have nothing that he did all by himself uh, other than his death. And even in death, he's identified as the brother of John. And yet, if we were to think that because of that, he, he really lived in the shadows, I think we would be mistaken. He was a man of zeal. And zeal is a noble characteristic when it is properly controlled and directed, just like spunk. It has to be directed in the right way. Because zeal can also be divisive and dangerous. And I want us to consider this evening the Lord's molding of James, an apostle who had much ambition, but ambition with attitude. We're introduced to him when he is called along with his brother, and I've had you turn to Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bibles open to Mark 1, look with me. We're going to see some of the biographical information about this man and then consider how the Lord molds him in his zeal. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, it says, And as he walked by the sea of Galilee, this is Jesus, and he's beginning his his Galilean ministry, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in a boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. In these verses, we find a few things that give us some details about his, his background, about his life. The first thing that we will notice is that James comes from a prominent family. He's, he's identified as the, the son of Zebedee. And his father was known. We know him as the, the brother of John. John was probably his younger brother because James, is, his name always appears first in the list. But we tend to know more about John. We also know that his father was Zebedee. And we find that in several places. And in fact, the boys at, at times are identified only as the sons of Zebedee. And we, Mat- Matthew 26 is one of those places. Uh, his prominence may have been due to his financial success, uh, possibly his family lineage or, or a combination of both. Zebedee was a successful businessman. He he owned a fishing business. We we read here that he had hired servants in the boat. And when James and John are called, uh, they're mending nets. I've shared with you, I spent two summers commercial fishing in Alaska, and between cleaning nets and mending nets, those were probably the two most tedious jobs. And so my heart is with them when they said, follow me, and they leave the nets because they were mending them. Let the servants do that but there were servants they didn't leave their their father without somebody helping them and there's an indication from early church history that that zebedee was a levite and therefore closely connected with the the high priest's family the family did have some level of stat status because john was known to the high priest caiaphas in John chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, as, as Jesus has been taken and, and John comes to the courtyard and Peter comes, John is the one who gets Peter into the courtyard and, because he is known there. So on that night of Jesus' arrest, uh, John's standing to the high priest has, allows Peter to come in. But we also find that their mother is mentioned in the Bible. In fact, if you'd like to look, you can. we'll come back to Mark in a moment, but if you look at chapter 27 of Matthew, just over a, a page, chapter 27 or maybe on the same page, but when we compare Matthew 27, and there are, there are different verses that we would look at, but it says that they, they come, and, and they find in verse, 20, in verse 56, Jesus has come, there are women that have followed Him, and in Matthew 27, verse 56, it says, Among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, if you compare that verse with Mark chapter 15, verse 40, we find that there, these three women are mentioned again. In Mark 15, verse 40, it says, There were also women looking on from afar off. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph, and Salome. In Mark 15, verse 40, we get the name. Salome. The name means peaceful. It's similar to Shalom. And she was a follower of Jesus. We know that she loved the Lord. She was probably one of those who provided financial support. And there's one other interesting connection, and there's there's a level of speculation, but as we bring Scripture together, we can see these pieces fit. In John chapter 19, verse 25, if you want to look there, we find one other interesting detail. In John chapter 19, 25, it says, "Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene." So there we find four women, three Marys, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary the the wife of Clopas, who must be the mother of James the Less and Jose. And the fourth woman that is mentioned there is identified as the sister of Jesus' mother. And so we find the mother mentioned as Salome, and it may be that She was also the sister of Mary's mother, which would make her Jesus' aunt, and James and John would be his cousins. And as you pull these pieces together, and there's a level of speculation here, but as you compare the the Scripture with Scripture and we're given these insights, we find a little bit more that it's very possible. And I think these are interesting details because we're going to see some of the zeal, not only in, in James and John, but also in their mother and as we look at his life this evening. But we do find that, that James, while coming from a prominent family, he tended to be overlooked. He, he was one of the three that was in the inner circle, but he's the least familiar of the three. As I've mentioned, he never appears as a standalone character. In fact, he's always paired with his lesser, his younger brother, but better known brother, John. And as I mentioned, there's not a single statement or isolated act that's recorded in Scripture that he does alone. Peter, Andrew, James, uh, John, Philip, Matthew, Thomas, even Judas. Are isolated and have their moments in the the spotlight of Scripture as it shines on them, but the only time James is mentioned as an event by himself is at his death. But he was a man of intensity, and and we see that in his character that he he was a man of zeal. That's that's part of what we see about him, and I I think that the tendency to underestimate him is to to really miss an important aspect. In two of the four lists of apostles, he's mentioned second, right after Peter. James was part of that inner circle, which means that he was there when Jesus raised Jarius' daughter from the dead. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was one of the those that Jesus urged to continue to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane as, as he took them further in and asked them to pray that night. He was one of those three. And he was among the four disciples who questioned Jesus in a private meeting on the Mount of Olives. So he was a man who had tremendous privilege. He saw the power of Christ, the glory of Christ, the agony of Christ. And he learned the mind of Christ. But he's also a man that that Jesus renamed. Uh, If you want to go back to Mark, and in chapter 3 we find this, that he's one of three that Jesus renames of the apostles. In, in the Bible times, names were given for a reason. They described character. They may have been names that reflected promise or hope. They, they might have noted a significant event. And three of the apostles are renamed by Jesus. And we find that in chapter 3 of Mark. All three of these are mentioned here. These are men who, who Jesus renames in chapter 3. 3, verse 13, it says, And he went up into the mountain, on the mountain, and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that they, he might send them out to preach, and have power to heal sickness, and to cast out demons. And we mentioned, we looked at this earlier, that Christ calls them for a couple of purposes. One is companionship. They might be with him. And the other is that he can commission them, that he might send them out to preach. And then in the next verses, we find those that he renames. In verse 16, And Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, That is, the sons of thunder. And then the rest of the apostles, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, the dais, Simon, the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And they went into a house. But in this passage, we find that renaming. He renames James and John the sons of thunder. I mean, these are the Boenergy brothers. I think I've known people like that. I know I've known people like that. And they're renamed. I I, I think these are boys who livened up the neighborhood. I mean, when when James and John were around, because Jesus renames them the sons of thunder, these, these, these are boys who had spunk. They had zeal. And and I I stress that because we live in a day when often that's not viewed as that great a quality. But but there is a need for spiritual leaders at times that have that, that thunderous personality. The sons of thunder. I think Elijah was one of those prophets. I think John the Baptist was like that. Outspoken, intense, and impatient with evildoers. And I mention this because in a culture like ours that elevates nice to nobility, we struggle to confront sin. And sometimes we struggle more with people who do confront sin. We struggle to support them because it doesn't sound nice. Well, we have to see sin as God sees it. We need people with a passion and zeal for the Lord. Zeal is a virtue if it is directed. Zeal that's ungoverned and misdirected is a vice. Zeal for Christ is noble, but without compassion, zeal is cruel. Zeal without wisdom is dangerous. And zeal with, mixed with insensitivity is often harsh. And we do see this in James and John. There's a vengeful zeal. Let me have you turn with me to Luke. We're going to look at several passages because I want to see you to see how this ambition is molded by the master. There's a vengeful zeal that we see in James and John, but not without reason. In Luke chapter 9, look at verse 51. It says, "Now it came to pass when he had that when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers before his face and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him but they did not receive him because his face was set for a journey to Jerusalem and when his disciples James and John saw this they said Lord Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? The sons of thunder wanting to call down fire. Now, understand the context. Recognize what is taking place here. The Lord is passing through Samaria on His way to Jerusalem. And because of the number of people that are with him, the Lord sent messengers ahead into a village to to try to make accommodations, make the arrangements, so that they don't all just show up, but to work this out ahead of time. But the problem was that the Jews and the Samaritans did not socialize. They didn't invite each other over to their houses. Most Jews took the longer route to avoid Samaria rather than go through it. The Samaritans were the mixed race, the product of Jews intermarrying with pagans from the northern kingdom. This had taken place back when the Assyrians had conquered Israel, and and they took the prominent and noble, the influential people into captivity. And then the king of Assyria sent back a priest to teach the people to to fear God. So they come to Samaria, and what you got was a, a blended religion that mixed truth with paganism, a syncretism that we often see taking place today. So the Samaritans had their own ideas of worship, and we understand this when Jesus needs go through Samaria, meets the woman at the well, and she said, well, our fathers say to worship here, and you say to worship there. This is their mixed religion. They claimed to worship Jehovah, but founded their own priesthood. They believed that Mount Gerizim was the place to worship. And this was that major dispute in the Gospel of John chapter 4. But since Jesus was going past Mount Gerizim to worship in Jerusalem, obviously he is making it clear that is not the place of worship. Therefore, they're not even showing the common courtesy that they would to travelers. And while the the Jews considered the Samaritans to be a mongrel race with a mongrel religion, understand that Jesus had never shown anything but kindness to the Samaritans. I mean, this situation wasn't a there's no room in the end type of situation. This was a there's no room for your type. That they're not going to allow Jesus to come with His disciples. Yet He had been kind to them. In fact, in one of His parables, He made the Samaritan the hero. The story of the good Samaritan. That just rubbed the Jews the wrong way. And so now they're treating him with contempt. So I, I give you that background. Do you understand why James and John are angry? Do you, do you see what their frustration is? There, there is a nobility in this because they're seeking to defend the Lord. And they, they asked, do you want us to call down, down fire like Elijah did? That statement, that reference is full of significance. Because it was during the time of Elijah when King Ahab reigned that Samaria became the center of Baal worship. We find this in 1 Kings 16, verse 32. Ahab built an ivory palace in Samaria. And that palace then was the place that King Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, the successor to the throne, was and he fell while he was there. And we find this in 2 Kings chapter 1. And this story is told there, and I'll give you the, the brief details. But 2 Kings 1 expands on this. So Ahaziah falls and is injured. His injuries were life-threatening, and so he sends a messenger to inquire whether or not he would recover. But he doesn't go to a prophet of God. The messengers are to go to the... Me- the he sends messengers to the prophets of Baalzebub. The God of Ekron. And we find that in 1 Kings, or in 2 Kings 1, verse 2. They're seeking prophecy of fortune tellers. And the, the Philistine deity that had, had cast off God's law. And this is who he's going to, Baal Zebub, the Lord of the flies. And the predictions would be made so generally and usually in flattering terms that they were ambiguous enough that they could fit pretty much any situation. But this is where the messengers are to go. And, and they're to go, and, and the Jews were so repulsed by this that they altered the name of Zebub to Beelzebul, the god of dung. So by the time Jesus came, Beelzebub was a reference to Satan. So again, all of this is context for this story. That as they're going, Ahaz was was looking for knowledge of the future, and instead of going to the Lord, he looks to pagan deities, and so God tells Elijah to go meet the messenger and give him the message that Ahaziah will die. So the messenger runs into Ahaziah, Elijah doesn't know who it is, goes back to Ahaziah and tells him that he met the prophet and the prophet said, you will die. And so Ahaziah says, who is this prophet? And he says, well, I don't know, but in 2 Kings 1.8, he says he was a hairy man wearing a leather belt. And Ahaziah says, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah was not a friend to Ahaziah's family. Ahaziah's parents... Ahab and Jezebel hated Elijah. Ahaziah probably also wanted to kill Elijah. So he sends a a regiment out after him. He has a captain take 50 men and, and they are to go after Elijah. But Elijah's not hiding. Elijah doesn't run. He sits on top of a hill. And he waits and the captain comes and he demands that Elijah comes down. And Elijah gets right to the point. He, said, he, he the, the, the captain says, if you're a man of God, the man of God, get down here. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, if I'm the man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And that's what happens. And word gets back to Ahaziah, this didn't go well. But he doesn't learn. So he sends another captain with another 50 men. And and they come, and and this captain apparently, when you read chapter 1 of 2 Kings, apparently thought that the first captain wasn't forceful enough. That somehow there was a timidity that gave Elijah some courage, so so he comes, and, and he says, you come down quickly, if you're a man of God. And Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume you and your men. And that's what happens. And Ahaziah won't quit. So he sends out a third group another 50 men but this captain had learned he learned from the other two that you know demanding that the man of God come down bring something else down and it will not end well so he comes and pleads for his life and the life of his men and Elijah comes down and goes with him and confronts Ahaziah and he dies now all of that took place in this region where the disciples are. And James and John must have remembered that story. That had to be one of the stories that was told of what had taken place there in Samaria. And the lack of hospitality of the Samaritans probably in their minds provided a reason and the story of Elijah gave the precedent So, Lord, can we command fire to come down like Elijah did right here on these people who still haven't learned? And I I think what we have to understand is there's a touch of nobility. They're defending the Lord's honor. I mean, they were angry that the Lord had been insulted. And and that's better than passivity or indifference. They recognized the insult. One, One writer put it this way, on the whole, we are not here altogether to tolerate, but we are here to resist, to control, and to vanquish. We are not to tolerate falsehood, thieveries, iniquities. As they fasten to us, we say to them, thou art false, thou art not tolerable. They were not tolerating this disrespect, but the problem was they discounted the Lord's heart. While their their desire was right, they did not understand what the Lord's heart was. There was an arrogance to their request. These these are the Boanergy brothers. They'd be glad to have fire added to their thunder. They wanted to do it. But that was not the heart of the Lord. Look at verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. There there was a time, there's a time that judgment will come, but it wasn't this time. And going on was inconvenient, but it was not inappropriate. And there really is a need for discernment with zeal. There's a, there's a need to know when to back off. Because later, Philip will preach Christ in Samaria and there will be many people that will be saved. See, the Son had not come to destroy them, but to save them. And salvation would come. And probably even some of those who were spared from the wrath of James when he wanted to torch them, literally, were saved when Philip preached. So there was a vengeful zeal. But the second thing we see is there's an ambitious zeal. Let me have you turn to chapter 20 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. Because in Matthew 20, we find an ambition that, that again, is for something that's good, but it's out of bounds. And we can learn from the zeal of this man. Matthew 20, look at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said unto her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in the kingdom. He says, I just have one minor request. Now, they've heard they're going to have thrones. I want want my boys to be on both sides. I I, I think I've met this mother as well. (laughs) I've met the boys, I've met the mom. (laughs) On multiple occasions. And, and, And she wanted something good. But it would appear that she's either using her influence, her position, or the strength of her personality to try to get what she wants rather than allow the Lord to lead. And the reason I, I, I showed you a little bit of the bringing the scripture together—that if she were the sister of Mary, and therefore the aunt—well, you know, blood is thicker than water. And these are your cousins. And really, it just—you know—make it a family affair. You want your, you want family on both sides, don't you? Or as she was one of those followers of the Lord, we've we've read that the Zebedee's. Wife would follow Jesus. She loved the Lord. Maybe, maybe she had supported financially and figured, well, that also may give a little bit of an inroad. You know, I've, I've, I've kind of helped support your ministry. I ought to get some, some perks from this. You know, I, I think, you know, today we would refer to as either a helicopter mom or a lawnmower parent. And I'm going to clear the way for my boys. And, and, and frankly, what she needed was to let her boys stand on their own. They needed less mothering and more mentoring. They needed to be molded by the Master. And Mark's Gospel, we see in, in Matthew's Gospel that they were there with her. But Mark's Gospel in chapter 10, verses 35 and following indicates that James and John were in on this request. It wasn't mom pulling them by the hands and saying, come on, I want to ask Jesus something and you need to be here. And their heads down. That wasn't it at all. They were in on this. And so not only was James fervent and zealous, but there's a lack of sensitivity here. There's an insensitivity to others. Maybe the am- ambition was an overconfidence. Because what we see is that there was a wrong purpose. They were seeking status rather than serving. They, they wanted status above the other apostles. There's, there's going to be 12 thrones, and we want those. I mean... It's pretty significant that you're one of the 12. And now to say, but that's not good enough. We want the top tier. And, and they want the status. And, and earlier in, in Matthew 19, verse 28, the disciples had heard Jesus say that when he came into the kingdom, they would sit on the 12 thrones around him, and, and now they want the right hand and the left hand. They, being promised a throne wasn't enough. It's got to go to the next level and what we see is they also had the wrong perspective they were seeking status rather than sacrifice there's a self-seeking attitude here and it's interesting to see how the lord responds look at verse 22 of Matthew 20 he subtly reminds them that suffering comes before glory it says in verse 22 but jesus answered and said do you not know you do not know what you ask are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. Yeah, we've got this. They don't understand what they've just volunteered for. It's like they're hearing the words, they don't understand the context. They don't understand that, what that means. I've told people when I when I came as president of International Baptist College and Seminary, one of the things that that I was told multiple times as as we were preparing to come was that we would be going through the reaffirmation process with TRACS, our accrediting agency. And so I had been told that and I said, Okay, fine, you know, I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea the pain and suffering that came with that. And some of the challenges that lay ahead. And that's what's happening here. Oh, yes, we can do that. They have no idea what that means. Yes, we're able. What they don't realize is they had just signed on the dotted line for suffering. Because the way to glory, the way to the throne was through the cross. The way to glory is through the suffering. But there was this wrong perspective, though there was a good ambition. What their mother wanted was not a bad thing, but it was inappropriate. It wasn't sinful. It actually showed faith that she trusted that what the Lord would, that he was going to reign. There's a lot of nobility. And so I don't want to paint it all as this this horrible negative picture. That's not the case. But we have to learn from it that even good things can get out of bounds if we're not careful. And what it does is it creates other problems because the, the next thing that we see is there was a divisive zeal. We can stay here in chapter 20, but I've given you other references, uh, other passages that also give this. But look at verse, verse 24 of Matthew 20. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it is, shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Their self-seeking attitude, their desire for those thrones now creates division and strife among the disciples. And again, the desires of the other disciples are also wrong. I mean, they're, they're wanting, they, you know, we didn't get to ask. Our mom wasn't here. But what what we see is that the question was really, the, the, the argument was who's going to have the prominent position? And this is a debate that carried right onto the table at the Last Supper. We find in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. So all of them had the wrong Attitude. But what we need to realize is if, we, if we're pushing the wrong things and it causes division, Satan loves to get that inroad. Oh, let's guard ourselves that we are never the instrument of stir, stirring up strife, even if it's a noble desire. But it's out of place. Because what Jesus had taught was blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek." for they they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The ones who will be blessed are those who are willing to serve. The picture in the upper room as Jesus takes off his garments and washes their feet, and, and, and sometimes we get the picture, well, this must have happened multiple times. No, that's not the case. This was the only time, and it shocked them. It was so out of proportion and, and really out of bounds with the culture of the day that, that they, they were stunned into silence. It, it tells us the room fell silent and finally Peter said, no, this is just wrong. And he says, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And I, I find it humorous. Paul, Peter is showing his humility by rebuking Jesus. It's like, what's wrong with this picture? But, but they understood. But what Jesus was sh- showing them was the humility. Humility. To be willing to serve. That's what we're seeking to raise up as servants for the Lord. Seeking to do more of that and developing it in the, the academy and getting the upperclassmen to be involved in ministering and serving. But that's church ministry. And we have to be careful that we don't push or try for something that then causes division and quarreling. It can happen in churches. It can happen in schools. It happens in workplaces. These are the types of things and understand what Jesus is saying. That's, that's what the Gentiles, the unsaved look for. They look for, look out for number one. That be first. And He's saying, but if you want to be great, serve. Because that's the pattern that Christ gives. And understanding this, the self-seeking caused conflict. The, the frustration and pushing that forward and recognizing the problems that were created because of this. But let's see the, how this is molded because we also see a devoted zeal. And we see this in James. Let me have you turn to Acts chapter 12 and we'll, we'll conclude in this passage this evening and make a few application points. Because what we find is that James is the first apostle to be martyred. It says in, in chapter 12, verse 1, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the, from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. And the story is going to go on and talk about the deliverance of Peter. But I want us to focus on James. The Herod that is mentioned here is Herod Agrippa I. He reigned from around 41 A.D. to 44. So this is probably a dozen years after the resurrection. And, and James has been faithfully serving in the church in Jerusalem. The church has grown. And because of this, the Herod is looking to target them. The Jews, the, the religious leaders who have rejected the Messiah, are, are not happy. And something about James makes him the target. We, we don't get any details about what it was, but something about him made him the one that Herod chose. And it pleased the Jews. What, what Herod did pleased them. And so they, to choose James out of all the Christian disciples indicates that he had some influence and effectiveness in the church there in Jerusalem. I mean, why else would he attract the hostility of the Jews and the attention of Herod that he would be the first disciple, the first apostle martyred? He's the second Christian martyr recorded in Acts, but he's the first apostle. And actually, he's the only apostle that we have the detail of his his death, that he was killed with the sword. He's the only apostle whose death is actually recorded in Scripture. The sword that they were asking for for ruling was actually not to rule, but to die for Christ. And to see that in this man, it really is to be better to be faithful than to be famous. We don't know him for anything he said. We have no sermons he preached. But he was a man of zeal and he was faithful. James sought glory. The Lord honored him with martyrdom. That he was given that prominence to be able to die for Christ. So what are some lessons that we can glean from the life of this man? I think one is a zealous person can be steered more easily than an apathetic person can be be moved. That's why I like kids with spunk. It has to be steered. But you see things happen. People with character and ambition do something. Paul, Saul was such a man. Before he met Jesus, he had had zeal. He was doing something. It wasn't good, but he was active. And when he got saved, he continued to have zeal. To the point that he and others were accused of turning the world upside down. In Acts chapter 17. People with character and ambition do something. They move forward. A passionate spirit surrendered to God is powerful. It is powerful to be great, serve. And I think we see that in James. We see him serving, we see him faithful. We see as well that God's greatness is achieved in serving, not exaltation. Initially, James wanted power, God gave him servanthood. Jesus called him to be a servant. Loyalty is more honorable than loudness. He may have had thunder but it was that loyalty to the Lord. He was transformed, still intense, still zealous, but with it directed and harnessed. This was a man of passion, an apostle of ambition, a man with an attitude. And I think it's fair for us to ask, are we willing to serve and to suffer for the Savior? We have very few details. We've, We've read in this passage of his death. Tradition records some things. We don't know how accurate it is, but tradition records that on the way to the place of martyrdom, one of the officers who had been guarding James was so impressed with his courage and consistency that he too confessed Christ as his Savior. And he begged James to forgive him, and James replied, Peace be with you. And according to tradition, they were both beheaded at the same time for their Christian testimony. But in the end, the intensity and attitude of James was tempered by the sensitivity and grace of Jesus Christ. And the Lord used him in the early church. James is a wonderful example that the Lord can use that zeal, committed to him, controlled by the Holy Spirit, and directed for the glory of God. May the Lord find us faithful. May we have that fire in our souls to serve the Lord and be like James, a person with ambition, but an ambition that is directed for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the example that we find in Your Word and the, the windows that Scripture gives us to look at the life of this man who was molded by the Master. Lord, we pray that You would mold us, that our ambitions, that our desires, that, that our Goals would be for your glory and that we would be willing to trust you rather than push in such a way that it creates problems. Lord, we pray that you would raise up from our children and young people those that that have the courage and character to go forth as laborers into the harvest. And for this, we'll give you the glory and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.